Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the word, and ready to... Uh, Let God the Holy Spirit teach you from what we're studying this evening, and then I will open in prayer. And Jack, Jack, where are you? Jack, or or Bruce, do not turn the streaming video off at the end. I need to test something up here, please. Just wanted to remind you of that. All right, let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, we're thankful that we can be here this evening, that we can study your word, because we know that your word is absolute truth, and it is the truth of your word that gives us confidence in understanding the issues of our own lives, the issues that face us, not only individually, but also as a nation. Father, we're thankful we live in this nation. We have the freedoms that we have, and we pray that you would continue to allow us to enjoy these freedoms. You would continue to raise up men and women who will be willing to Uh, make the ultimate sacrifice to preserve those freedoms, and we pray for leaders in this nation who would be willing to see things the way they are as you've described them, and that we would have uh, men and women raise up who can give wisdom to the leaders in this nation to make, make good decisions, decisions that will enable us to continue to be secure and decisions that will uh, protect us uh, financially as well. Father, we pray tonight as we study your word that you would just again challenge us with your sovereignty and your control of history. And even though we live in just a microscopic part of that history, we're nevertheless a vital part of the overall plan that you are working out in history for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles tonight to Joel chapter 1. Joel chapter 1. Last night we went through Obadiah and about... 15 or 20 minutes, along with some other passages, and that may be the only time you ever get a look at Obadiah. Tonight, we're going to go through Joel, and this may be the only time we go through Joel, but it's important for understanding a lot of different issues and prophetic issues in the New Testament, as well as uh, certain other aspects of of the New Testament. Now, last time we began a study of the Day of the Lord. We're taking a somewhat parenthetical break in our study of Revelation chapter 19. We reach the point where the Lord Jesus Christ returns uh, to the earth, and he is going to uh, defeat his enemies 
and we've got as far as verse 16. After that, we see the judgments begin that occur at the time of his arrival and at the time of the second coming. We'll get into those in detail. But first, we're doing sort of a preliminary or prelude introductory study on this concept of the day of the Lord because that's the, that is the Old Testament terminology and structure within which the second coming takes place and all of the events, the, especially the immediate events leading up to uh, the return of the Lord, and then uh, what happens after that all come together within this uh, Old Testament terminology of the day of the Lord. So last time I pointed out uh, a few things, so I want to get, repeat the first two points and then some summary from last time. First of all, the phrase, the day of the Lord, that just that specific phrase, occurs in 19 Old Testament passages in reference to a specific time of divine judgment. In addition to that phrase, there are other references such as that day, the great day of the Lord, uh, the day of God, that also relate to this same time of, of the same concept of judgment. Most of the time, those phrases refer to the eschatological event that occurs at the end of the tribulation, but there are a few passages that refer to historical judgments, and that's the focus of the second point. The second point I made was that the phrase day of the Lord refers to God's special interventions into human history in order to judge his enemies and accomplish his purposes for history thereby demonstrating that he is the sovereign God of the universe. That is directly connected to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ there in Revelation 19.16, where he is the king, revealed as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Some passages relate to a historical fulfillment, such as Lamentations 1.12, 2.1, 2.21-22, and a few other passages that we will take time to look at that seem to relate only to the historical judgment that occurred in 586 B.C. What becomes challenging in our study of the Scriptures is to discern which other passages are historical and which ones are eschatological. And a lot comes to bear on that. And the reason I, I make that point is because you may go look at the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Bible, and, and once again, whenever you do that, it's always important to understand the theological proclivities of the authors of the individual books. There's a lot of great material in there in terms of a one or two volume compact um, commentary. It's the I think it's the best that's out there, and it has a tremendous amount of uh, great material in there. But you have to also know who these guys are. Most of them were seminary professors when I was uh, working in my master's in the late 70s, and so you know I can uh, evaluate them with a certain amount of understanding. As soon as I, first thing I do when I look go to a book like when I looked at Joel today was I looked to see who who the author of that was, and um, it's um, Chisholm. And Chisholm 
You know, he, he pushes the envelope on the open theology of God. In fact, if you, this openness theology of God, if you're not familiar with it, is a theolo- theological construct that came out, started coming out in the late 80s and into the 90s and created quite a stir in the evangelical theological society, uh, back in the early, early, uh, 2000s. And there were three men who had been, uh, heavily involved in ETS for years and were widely respected world-class theologians. One of them was Clark Pinnock, and I forget who the other two were. And they were brought up on uh, charges as to whether or not they should continue to, they, they, on whether or not they had violated the doctrinal statement of ETS, which is not, which is pretty hard to do because there's only one thing you have to believe, and that is that the Word of God is a divinely inspired and errant Word of God. It's a pretty simple doctrinal statement. But these guys had all slipped over the edge, and unfortunately, um, ETS did not have the theological toughness to vote them out. And as a result, men like Norm Geisler and a number of others uh, resigned from the organization because of their failure to really stick to a consistent application of their doctrinal statement. And Chisholm, I'm not going to say Chisholm holds to that view, but his writings have been consistently um, footnoted and referenced by the openness of God people. And there are other things that are somewhat problems there. And So I kind of looked at his, what he said about Joel and a couple of the controversial areas and kind of raised my eyebrow on a few things that he said, and there are some other things that come up. And one of the issues that comes up that's a critical hermeneutical issue that is highly debated among and hotly debated among dispensationalists is whether you have such a thing as a dual fulfillment of prophecy or whether you have a single and only a single fulfillment of prophecy. Is there a partial fulfillment? But that sounds like an oxymoron. How can something partially fulfill? It either fulfills it or doesn't fulfill it. And in my view, the and the more conservative of us hold to single fulfillment. That is one of the major emphases that we were we learned last year when Dr. Robert Thomas was here at the pastors' conference, at the Chafer conference, in his lectures, is that a passage has one and only one meaning, and one of the uh, corollaries of that is that there's only one fulfillment of a prophecy. You don't have dual fulfillment. And one passage they often go to is the passage in Isaiah uh, 7.14, dealing with the, the, the virgin uh, conception, thinking that there was a near fulfillment and then a far fulfillment. And Arnold Fruchtenbaum's work on that is masterful. In fact, I think Arnold got some of his work from uh, Ed Heinsohn. Ed wrote, a, uh, wrote, I think, his master's thesis on that back in the late 60s, early 70s. Did a phenomenal job showing that you have to pay attention to your second-person plural and second-person singular pronouns in that passage so that you know when uh, Isaiah is addressing uh, King Ahaz individually and when he is addressing King Ahaz as a representative of the Davidic line corporately, which would call for the plural pronoun, which is integral to understanding that that prophecy. But these are technical issues. They're not easy, and I'm not going to go into a lot of those details tonight, but I want you to be aware that when you come to some of these passages, that it involves making a hundred, 
mine, what apparently seem minor, tiny exegetical decisions, all of which come together to produce a particular interpretation, uh, particular interpretation of a passage that may not be the mainstream view even among uh, some dispensationalists, let's say. Um, this And Joel is one of those passages, and that was one of the things that I've had to go back and uh, think through again. Every time I go through this, I have to think it through another time, and I keep coming to the same conclusion, so at least I'm consistent. And that is that Joel chapter 2 isn't talking about any sort of near fulfillment with a shift in the middle of the chapter to a far fulfillment. Chapter 2 is talking about the day of the Lord and how catastrophic it's going to be. The end of the chapter talks about the grace that God is going to give even in the midst of the judgment of the day of the Lord. And then the, the, chapter 3 begins with the deliverance of uh, at, during the day of the Lord. But chapter 2 and chapter 3 are all future even to today. They were not ever fulfilled historically. And this is where you get, and I'll address it, in passing as we go through a couple of the passages. But this is why hermeneutics is the battleground today, not only in the Bible, but also with the Supreme Court and in courtrooms, is because you can believe in the inerrancy and infallibility and the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture uh, and say you affirm that all day long. And you can take away from that with your hermeneutic, with your interpretation. You can say you believe in in the literal interpretation of the scripture, but then you come along and say, well, that's really a metaphor, or that is some sort of figure of speech that ends up where you, ends up going to an interpretation that is contrary to a, liter, a, a traditional literal historical grammatical interpretation of the text. And so it just gets more and more complicated, and I can imagine that if you're sitting out in the pew you're scratching your head and said, I thought God's revelation was going to be easy to understand. Well, men have made it extremely complicated. And one example of that relates to the doctrine I just alluded to in terms of inspiration or inerrancy. 150 years ago, you just had to say, I believe the Bible is the word of God. Today, to mean the same thing, you have to say you believe the Bible is the infallible, inerrant, verbally, plenarily inspired breathed out word of God and is without error in the original manuscripts. Why? Because as each generation goes by and there are more and more assaults on the, on the scripture, then those who believe in the scripture have to respond to those assaults and they constantly have to refine and redefine and clarify because Satan is always trying to make an end run around vocabulary. The battle is always on vocabulary, and you have to define these uh, these terms very carefully when they become the focal point of the assault. So that's why the day of the Lord is an important, critical pass, uh, terminology to, to understand, and there's aspects of it that we'll get into probably next time that I think are kind of interesting, and I'm just beginning to understand what some of these other arguments are, but we'll get, we'll get, get there in due time. Okay, the second point was just to emphasize the fact that the day of the Lord refers in a few places historically to historical judgments, but most of the time it refers to an eschatological event 
that is associated with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in the establishment of the kingdom. Now, the third thing is just to review last time. We looked at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 10 through 22, and there were three things that we learned from that passage. First thing we learned is that the day of the Lord is a time of universal judgment on the proud, on the arrogant, that the human race is pictured as arrogant, hostile to God, and God is going to bring a worldwide judgment on the arrogant and the proud among the human race, and that is the day of the Lord. This is in Isaiah 2, 11 to 12, and verse 17. Second thing we learned was that this will be a time of terror, stark terror in the souls of men because of God's judgment, so much so that they will flee into caves and into uh, the mountains in order to protect themselves from the astrogeophysical calamities that are taking place around them. This is in chapter uh, 2, verse 10, verse 19, and verse 21. The third thing we see is that this is associated, the day of the Lord in Isaiah 2 is associated with an earthquake. And the combination of the earthquake and the men hiding in caves is identical to what we find in Revelation 6.14, the sixth seal judgment. So I think we can make a solid connection there. Uh, in Revelation 6, I said 15 through 17, rather, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? So it is identifying this at that early stage in the, in the tribulation, the sixth seal, that this is the great day of his wrath. That term is another one of those uh, more, more generally phrased terms that refers to the day of the Lord, the day of his wrath, the day of his great wrath, the day of his anger. These are other terms that are synonymous with the day of the Lord. Second passage we looked at was Isaiah 13. Four things we learned there. First of all, the day of the Lord is associated with labor pains, as a woman is going through labor to give birth. That's in Isaiah 13.8. Second thing we learned is that there are accompanying astrological, uh, astronomical rather, astronomical signs. Uh, the stars of heaven are darkened. The moon is darkened. The heavens shake. There's also an earthquake. The earth shakes. And then they immediately experience the wrath of the Lord of hosts. I think the events there are directly related to the events just preceding the second, the second coming and the defeat of, of Babylon in that, and the destruction of Babylon in Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 14. Isaiah 13, 13 says, Therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place. And the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. So it, where some people have become confused is you see more than one time during the tribulation where you have uh, a darkening of the sun, darkening of the moon, uh, 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 the appearance of the stars falling to the earth. You have more than one earthquake. What happens and when people try to make all of those relate to the same event, then you, then you start having problems. So these are different events. And as you go through the tribulation, the earthquakes increase and the, these astrogeophysical calamities begin to 
uh, increase in their intensity. Now, there was this big earthquake we had in um, Haiti just last, what, two weeks ago, and I, it didn't take long before you started hearing some evangelicals talk about how earthquakes were increasing in intensity. But that, again, is an, is an interpretation of Matthew 24, frankly, I don't agree with. When it says there will be rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes, this is talking about a sign of his coming. It's not talking about a trend within the church age. It's the question the disciples ask is, what's the sign of your coming? And Jesus says, the sign of my coming are going to be these earthquakes and famines and plagues and wars and rumors of wars, and that fits the sealed judgments in Revelation chapter 6. That's within the tribulation. This is not talking about the increasing intensity of wars in the tribulation in the, in the church age or that there's going to be an increasing number of, uh, of earthquakes in the church age or increasing number of diseases in the church age. The focal point of that passage is within the uh, 70th week of Daniel. It's not talking about anything else. But a lot of people have made it that way, and that's because we've come out historically from a history of a thousand years of interpreting these events in a historicist manner where you're looking at these things that are clearly future and you're trying to apply them to today. And, and before 1800, every 99.9% of the interpreters of Scripture were in we're interpreting these futuristic things as if they were happening within the tribulation period. Now, the further we get down the road of trying to consistently apply a historical, grammatical, literary interpretation of Scripture within a dispensational framework, the more we're beginning to divest ourselves of the remnants of some of this historicism. But you still have people who, who do this. I mean, Hal Lindsey, God love him. He, you know, somebody once asked, asked, uh, asked Earl Rodmacher what he thought of Hal Lindsey's book, Late Great Planet Earth, and Earl kind of shrugged his shoulders and said, well, I didn't like it too much, but apparently God did because hundreds of thousands of people have gotten saved reading it. And that's true. I've always had two or three people in my congregation that have gotten saved reading Lake Great Planet Earth. But Hal made it sound like the rapture would occur before uh, 2000. He was sure of it because he took generation as 40 years, and uh, Jerusalem was retaken in 1968. Forty years later would be 2008, so the rapture would probably be at least seven years before that. So by 2001, the rapture would occur. Simple math. That's historicism. That's not futurism. So we have to be consistent in our application and understanding of, of interpretation. So these statements about the earth shaking, these co- cosmic catastrophes, those are within Daniel's 70th week, not preceding it. The fifth thing, fifth point, we saw in Isaiah 34:2 that The day of the Lord is when the Lord judges the nations. Again, as Isaiah uh, 2 focused on its universal, here it's judging the nations. And in the description of the day of the Lord in Isaiah 34, we saw that the day of the Lord, the, in that day, the day of the Lord description there, the Lord is against all of the armies and his destruction of them. 
And there's reference, and so I believe the reference in Isaiah 34 is specifically to the end time of the tribulation period uh, related to the campaign of Armageddon. Even though the descriptions there, and I'm clarifying this from last time, even though the descriptions there are similar to Revelation 6. Remember in Revelation 6 it talks about the the heavens being rolled back, the sky being rolled back like a, like a scroll. You have that same imagery in Isaiah 34.4, all the host of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll and all their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree. Even though the description is similar, because of everything else that's in Isaiah 34, that has to be Armageddon campaign, end of Daniel's 70th week, whereas in Revelation chapter uh, 6, verse 14, that is clearly much earlier at the end of the six uh, seal judgments. Six seal judgments. So... That brings us down to the next key passage that we have to look at to understand the day of the Lord, and that is Joel. Joel chapter 1 is the first mention of the day of the Lord in uh, Joel. And we find this in Joel uh, 1, um, Where did that reference go? I think it's Joel 1, 9, or 1. I'll get there. Hmm? I just lost it. It's in Joel 1. I keep thinking it's 17, but uh, it's before that. Alas for the day, 15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. That's the first reference to day of the Lord in Joel. Now, the question that we have to answer is, is that talking about a historical judgment or is that talking about a future judgment? So to answer that, we have to look at some issues related to the background of Joel. So let's, let me just give you a little orientation and overview of, of Joel. There's an outline for you. I'll, let me say some other things and I'll put that up in a minute. The title of the book is Joel because it's named after the prophet to whom God revealed this. Uh, Joel or Yoel is the Hebrew for Yahweh is God. The first syllable is Yah from Yahweh. The second syllable, El, is God. So it's Yahweh is God. We don't know anything about it. There are some 11 other individuals in the Old Testament who had the name of Yoel, we don't know, and he wasn't one of those. So he is uh, someone who's only identified as the son of Petuel, which means persuaded by God, and we don't know when he lived. There's nothing specific in the text to uh, hang a date on, so it is really uncertain. Uh, as to, There's no real hardcore objective evidence as to when uh, Joel lived or when the book was written. But there are four suggested uh, dates for Joel, and there's a lot of debate over this, and this is some of the most uh, probably controversial part of the, uh, the study of the book. The first of those who take an early, early pre-exilic date 
probably during the reign of Jehoshaphat. This would be very close to the same time as Obadiah, which we looked at last time. Uh, early pre-exilic date, probably during the, either the reign of Jehoshaphat or of his grandson, uh, Joash, whose dates, Jehoshaphat's dates are 872 to 848, and his grandson's dates are 835 to 796. And in, bet- in between, we have uh, Athaliah, who is Joash's grandmother. She is the wicked uh, daughter of Jezebel, who kills all of the uh, sons, all the offspring of her son, so in, in a satanically inspired attempt to wipe out the seed of David. But Joash is hidden, and he's raised by the priests, and it's and the thought is that it was during that time when Joash was being ra- hidden and raised by the priests that this is uh, that this was written. the The argument for an early pre-exilic date, or first of all, the position of Joel in the Hebrew canon, it's in the beginning of the collection of the twelve. Hosea is the first book; Joel's the second book. Uh, second reason it's stated to be early is because the enemies of Israel that are mentioned by by Joel, Tyre, Sidon, Philistia, Egypt, and Edom were enemies of Israel during that early stage. This is just after the time period we're studying on Sunday morning in, in Second Kings. Also, the there's no mention of a king, but there's a prominent role of priests and elders, which would be true during the time when Joash was uh, Joash was was young. Also within the book, there's a mention of the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which would fit with a pre-exilic date related to uh, Jehoshaphat or because he's the last good king in the southern kingdom before the reign of Joash. And this all seems to add up to the fact that that seems to be a superior date. And, And if I were to choose, that's the one I would choose. The second option is that it's a little bit later, roughly during the time of Isaiah, during the reign of King Uzziah, in, uh, who reigned from 792 to 740. And this is, but but there's no reference to Assyria or Babylon or Persia, which of course plays a prominent role in the prophecies of of Isaiah. And so that would make it a little less likely. A some, and there are a number of these hold to a late pre-exilic date which would put it around 597. This would be the time of the second invasion of Nebuchadnezzar into the southern kingdom, and 587 just before his third invasion when he destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. This would, If that date were true, then Joel would be a contemporary of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, and Daniel. The problem is that Joel 2, 18-19 seems to indicate that there's a repentance toward God uh, when God relented of punishment, of course, this never happened historically to this degree, and so it's not likely that that is when um, uh, that that would, and that's usually what they put seem to indicate or put some emphasis on that there was a time of some partial repentance uh, early on. Fourth, there's a post-exilic date, but that's usually not taken by uh, by conservatives because that has a certain impact on how you view the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. Now, Joel is a prophet in the southern kingdom. His focus is on Jerusalem, 
and he is calling the southern kingdom to turn back to the Lord, and he's using the occasion of a of a contemporary judge, judgment, a contemporary disaster. Now, this is an interesting way to look at the scripture and to learn something in terms of application. The description of in Joel one it focuses on a a, a locust attack that has devastated the agriculture in the southern kingdom. It's destroyed the crops, and it's going to wipe out the economy, and it is clearly part of an act of divine judgment upon the nation in line with the uh, five stages of divine discipline. And what what Joel does is he takes this, this disaster that occurs... And he uses that as just a microcosm illustration of the macro disasters that are going to occur during the day of the Lord at the end times. And that has application because uh, as, as, a, as a pastor or preacher, we can look at a disaster like Katrina or Hurricane Ike or the earthquake in Haiti and use that as an occasion. See how horrible this is? This is nothing compared to the kind of earthquakes and disasters that God is going to bring upon the world because of their rejection of him. So we need to be prepared because the tribulation is going to see earthquakes of that magnitude and ten times greater on a consistent basis and millions and billions are going to be killed. And so if you think this is bad, you haven't seen anything. And that's what Joel is saying, is he's looking at this disaster that comes from this, this locust attack, and he says this was terrible. But when the end times comes and the armies of the invaders come, they're going to be much worse than this army of locusts that just attacked us. And they will destroy every person and every city and wipe out everything in the land. And so he uses this uh, historical disaster of the locusts to give a picture of the future devastation that will occur during the time of the day of the Lord. But even in his announcement of judgment, there's a focus on grace. So I pointed out on Sunday morning, grace always comes before judgment, and grace always often comes with judgment. And in Joel 2, verses 13 and 14, we see the, the offer, the grace offer. Verse 12, so rend your heart and not your garments. In other words, if you're going to get emotionally upset about the reality of coming judgment, don't make it superficial and just do it in an overt way, but rend your heart. It should impact your soul and change your volition. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return, shuv, this is the Hebrew word to turn back to the Lord. Sometimes it's translated repent and has the real, that's the real focus of repentance is to change direction, to turn. This is what the same word that, that Moses used uses in Deuteronomy 30 when the people turn back to the Lord. In modern Hebrew, they, they call someone who uh, become, moves from being a secular Jew to an observant Jew that they've done Shavah. They have repented. They have turned. So 
here we have this this same word here. Turned, uh, he uses it in verse 12, Turn to me with all your heart, uh, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. So rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering, a drink offering, for the Lord your God. So this is the offer of, of the grace offer to turn to the Lord and he will perhaps relent of the punishment. So there is a grace offering, uh, in, uh, that comes along with the, uh, with the announcement of judgment. Now here's an outline for you of the, of the book. Four basic divisions indicated by the Roman numerals one, two, three, and four. Uh, the introduction in one one that tells you who the author is and identifies him. Uh, the first real major division is chapter one verses two through twenty, which focuses on the current catastrophe as a type or picture of the future day of the Lord. The se- second major division, or Roman numeral three on the outline, is chapter two. The future day of the Lord is a Human invasion of the land. There's a description of the invading army in the first 11 verses. There's a call to repentance, to turn back to the Lord in verses 12 through 17. And then verses 18 through 27 talks about the Lord uh, giving grace to his people and returning them uh, to the land and their, and the grace restoration. And then the third major division of Roman numeral four is the deliverance that occurs in Israel in the future day of the Lord from 2.28 through 3.21. So that's your basic parts. Chapters one, two, and three break down. One is a current uh, event, disaster, that's a type of the future day of the Lord. Chapter three is the future day of the Lord, a human invasion of the land. Chapter three is the deliverance that occurs in the future day of the Lord. So let me just hit a couple of high points as we look at this. In the first chapter, there's the occasion, which is this locust invasion. And the prophet cries out, Hear this, you elders, give ear all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it and let your children tell their children. In other words, learn from the past. Don't make the same mistakes that your forefathers made. But alas, we never learn from history. That's what we learn from history is we never learn from history. And no one seems to pass on or accept the lessons of their parents or their forefathers. And then verse 4, we have four different kinds of locusts mentioned. There's a lot of debate over that. There are many today who think that uh, these are all talking about the same locust. However, there are differences in the Hebrew, and I believe that those are not just there for stylistic reasons, but indicate, as many have believed over the centuries, that these are four different stages in the development of the locust. And so there is the uh, gazam uh, locust, the also refer, referred to in the in verse four as the chewing locust, probably a caterpillar. Then there is the uh, Arbe uh, locust, the second one, 
the King James just refers to it as a locust. The New American Standard calls it swarming locusts. And the New International Version translates it great locusts. Then the third are the yellow uh, locusts. The KGV calls them canker worms. The uh, New American Standard translates it as a stripping locust. And um, New King James calls them a consuming locust. And then the um, the fourth is the Cassile locust. King James puts caterpillar there, but that's probably the, a better translation for the first one. This is a stripping locust or a destroying locust, but they indicate three different stages of growth in the locust, four, I mean, four different stages, four different attacks, and the end result is that everything is wiped out. The leaves are eaten, the bark is eaten, everything, all the crops are eaten, and nothing, uh, nothing is left. And so the nation is left in an economic catastrophe because their uh, crops have been completely destroyed. And there's further description in verses 6 and 7 comparing the um, uh, the locust to the teeth of a lion and how they've just wasted the vine and the fig tree and stripped it all bare and stripped the bark bare. The branches are made white at the end of, end of verse, uh, verse 7. And so everything is wasted and the land is, the land mourns and the people mourn because the crops have all been destroyed. This is, at that point in verse 15, uh, Joel says, alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Now, a lot of commentaries will say this is a reference to that historical event. But as I read this in the Hebrew, it, it, the statement is the day of the Lord is near. Well, verses 1 through 14 have already occurred. It's past. So the statement the day of the Lord is at hand or near it's where he starts to make this transition using the current crisis to warn of the future day of the Lord that shall come. It shall come, future tense. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. The Hebrew um, imperfect there indicates a future, uh, future orientation that, uh, so he's using at this point the present catastrophe to uh, relate to the future. So that's the setup in chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, we have the shift to the future day of the Lord, beginning in verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Now, historically, we've had this phrase, day of the Lord, used in Obadiah as being an earlier book. So there's a precedent there, but day of the Lord in Obadiah, as I pointed out last time, clearly refers to a future worldwide judgment of the nations. So if we look at at it historically, the first historical use of the phrase day of the Lord is eschatological. So if that is our frame of reference, then we would have to look at this as being uh, eschatological as well, which fits when we compare this to other descriptions that we see in Isaiah, which Isaiah wrote after Joel, I believe, or even if it was contemporaneous, the descriptions are similar. Verse 2, we have this description of how when the day of the Lord comes, it's accompanied by these 
things that occur in the heavens and in the atmosphere, a day of darkness and gloominess. We saw those same descriptions earlier in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 34, the, the events that occur to the sun, the moon, the stars. It's a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds uh, spread over the mountains, a people... And then the word come is added. It makes sense, and that uh, gives the sense of the Hebrew there. People is coming great and strong, the like of whom has never been. Now, this is why I think that this has to be taken to be eschatological. The, the descriptions that are given here are indicate the uniqueness, the historical uniqueness of this event. Now, if you remember from things that we've studied elsewhere, when Jesus is talking in Matthew 24, he says, related to the events uh, in the tribulation, he says, nothing like this has ever happened before. Daniel says the same thing. Nothing like this has ever happened before in Daniel chapter 12. So here we have in, in uh, Joel chapter 2 this same kind of reference, the like of which has never been nor will there ever be any after them, even for many successive generations. So the point is, this is a one-of-a-kind event on this day of the Lord. That, that clearly removes it from being a reference to the 586 judgment under, uh, from Nebuchadnezzar. So it is, it's future. Uh, verses 3 through 7 describe the army, describe all of the, uh, the violence that occurs in terms of fire and flame and destruction. The horses are mentioned, chariots. Often people say, well, how are we to understand this? Are the end time army is going to have horses and chariots? Or are they going to have tanks and, and uh, uh, Apache helicopters and uh, what's it going to be like? Are these just metaphors for some kind of a future machine? I think that by the end of the tribulation, the entire electronic grid is going to be wiped out by all of those meteor showers and other things that occur, and we're going to be thrown back to a primitive style of, uh, of warfare. And computers aren't going to do anybody any good. Just think if the entire electrical grid went down how difficult it would be to do anything now because we've become so computer dependent. And the next generation, I, I just if that were to happen, all those poor high school kids would know what to do with them with their thumbs and their fingers. They'd have to talk to somebody. So it it I, I do believe that that this is that there will be a return to a primitive warfare using horses and swords and chariots and bows and arrows and whatever can be pulled together. Then skip down to verse 10. I have another description of these events that occur, these astro-geophysical events. The earthquakes before them, so there's a major earthquake at this time. The heavens trembled. These same pictures that we see, but we in Revelation we saw them several times. We saw these things happen in the seal judgments, we saw in the trumpet judgments, and in the bowl judgments. So they get increasingly more severe. The earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. 
The Lord gives voice before his army. This is another reason I think this is talking about the end times. It's the Lord's army from his camp. It's his camp, his army, and he is the one who is, uh, it's as strong as the one who executes his word. So I think that's a shift from the father to the son who is the one who executes the word and comes to bring judgment. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Verse 12, as I've read already, this is the call to turn back to God and the call for grace. And then skip down to verse 18, we read, Then the Lord will be zealous for his land. This is when the people have turned. This is what happens at the end of the tribulation when the remnant of Israel turns back to the Lord. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land and pity his people. The land is the land of Israel. The the people are the... Uh, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, specifically the remnant. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you grain and new wine and oil. In contrast to the destruction that's occurred from the, from the locusts, God is now going to supply an abundance of food. He is the source of prosperity. You will be satisfied by them. I will no longer make you a reproach among the nations. Now that promise is connected to this day of the Lord. The only time in history that God fulfills that promise of not making the Jews a reproach to the nations is at the second coming. This passage has to be a second coming passage. It cannot refer to any historical uh, judgment because it is when they respond and turn in association with this day of the Lord that God will no longer make them a reproach among the nations. He says, I will remove far from you the northern army. This is one of the armies of the Antichrist that is coming into Israel. He's going to remove the northern army, will drive him away into a barren and desolate land, and his face, uh, with his face towards the eastern sea, that's the salt sea, the, the, the dead sea, and his back toward the western sea, that's the Mediterranean, and he's completely, his armies are wiped out, his stench will come up, his foul order will rise, but he has, because he has done monstrous things. So that is the destruction of the armies of the Antichrist, which occurs at the end of the Armageddon campaign at the second coming. So that, this all fits that scenario at the, at the end of the tribulation. Verse 21, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, For the Lord, for Yahweh, has done marvelous things. Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up. This is the new life that will come as the Lord restores the land and restores the planet at the beginning of the um, millennial kingdom. The tree will bear its fruit, the trees and the vine will yield their strength. Then verse 23, Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain, the latter rain. In other words, this is what will bring prosperity. In Israel, it rains at the time of planting and just before harvest, and this is the former rain and the latter latter rain. And then there's the promise of restoration in verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Verse 26, you will eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God. This is all future when Israel is restored as a regenerate nation. They will uh, praise the name of the Lord who has dealt wonderfully with them. And then verse 28, 
And it shall come to pass afterward, after the day of the Lord that's just been described in chapter 2, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That is what happens after the Lord returns. This is what, when he is establishing the new covenant with Israel. This is the new covenant promise of the spirit that uh, we see in Jeremiah 31 uh, 31 and following. Then I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. This is describing this ministry that God the Holy Spirit will have in the millennial kingdom within Israel. Because the nation Israel at that time will finally function as God intended them to do when he called them out back in Ezekiel, uh, in Exodus 19, and he said, you will be a kingdom of priests to me. They've never functioned as a priest nation in the midst of all of the Gentile nations. But that will come to pass in the millennial kingdom. And so God pours out his spirit on the whole nation all, they're all saved. All Israel is saved, as we read in Revelation chapter uh, eleven, thirty-two, and following. And that's when this is applied. Now, Peter quotes this in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. But if you notice, what Peter is responding to is this question about the apostles speaking in languages. Well, there's no mention of speaking in tongues in Joel two. No mention of it. Peter says this is what the prophet Joel referred to. But what does he mean by this is what the prophet Joel referred to? He means this is like what the prophet Joel described because nothing that happened in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost is described here. Nothing that is described, and what did happen there was speaking in tongues, and that's not here. What Peter was saying is this, the event of on the day of Pentecost is like this pouring out of the Spirit, what it would have been. Remember the Pentecost being the feast day in the Feast of Israel. That day would have seen the pouring out of this Spirit on Israel for the kingdom if they had accepted the kingdom offer that Jesus made when he came at the first advent. But because they rejected it, there is a postponement of the kingdom and there is a different manifestation of the spirit that comes in the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. And so Peter is making that comparison that what is hap- what happened on the day of Pentecost was like it was a it was similar to what was promised by Joel and in uh, Joel 2. It would have been the fulfillment of it according to those that feast day pattern but Israel had rejected uh rejected the kingdom offer. So the passage goes on to say in verse 30, And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. See, this is another, this isn't what happened before the judgment. This happens after the pouring out of the Spirit. So this is within what what we'll see is the 75-day interval between the second coming and the establishment of the millennial kingdom. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming uh, of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So again, there seems to be a distinction here between the uh, day of the Lord events of chapter 2 and this final event that that takes place here. And you have uh, several different uh, manifestations of these uh, heavenly events. 
And then verse 32 states, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that verse is quoted in Romans chapter uh, 11, verse 26, and also in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. And this is a reference to when Israel as a nation about to be destroyed by the Antichrist, turns to the Lord and calls on him to deliver them. Not salvation in terms of justification, but salvation in terms of physical deliverance from the enemies of the Antichrist. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be delivered, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. So that is related to uh, the final events of the campaign of Armageddon. And then we get into chapter 3, for be, and this is the deliverance that occurs. For behold, in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, this is when the Lord sends out the angels to gather the elect from the four corners of the earth after the second coming. I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, most people believe the valley of Jehoshaphat is another term uh, for the uh, Kidron Valley that runs between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. Others think that it might be the Valley of Beracha, which is south of Jerusalem down towards Bethlehem, where Jehoshaphat had uh, victory over his enemies there. So there's a certain uncertainty as to exactly where the Valley of Jehoshaphat is, but what goes on there is the judgment of the nation. So we'll get into that when we get into the series of judgments that take place uh, after the second coming. Uh, bring the nations down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. This is the, uh, the, the judgment of the sheep and the goats, referred to in Matthew chapter 25. Bring them down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, enter into judgment with them there, on account of my people, my heritage, Israel, whom they have scattered, they being the Gentiles, have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people, have given a boy's payment for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the coasts of Philistia? This is Tyre and Sidon's Lebanon. Philistia is the Gaza Strip, by the way. So there is a uh, direct confrontation there with those who are the immediate surrounding enemies to the nation uh, to the nation Israel. And then you read through to the end of the chapter, and there is the promise of God's blessing upon the nation as he establishes his rule on Zion, verse 17, his dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no alien shall ever pass through her again. It will come to pass in that day that the mountain shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water, fountains shall flow from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Acacia. So we'll see that fulfilled uh, more specifically in Zechariah when we go there next week. Also, Egypt will be a desolation, Edom a desolate wilderness. We looked at Edom, the prophecy on Edom last time, but that's also fulfilled, Isaiah 34, when the Messiah comes, rescues the people down at Petra, the, the remnant, brings them back into Judah, and he comes up and he's got the robe that's stained with blood and dripping blood, and they ask, uh, where has he come from? And he's come from Edom. So this is the... Uh, at this time, there's a destruction of Egypt, destruction of Edom, and uh, the establishment of Judah 
and Israel. Verse 20, But Judah shall abide forever in Jerusalem from generation to generation, for I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed whom I had not acquitted, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So what have we learned on the day of the Lord? That in Joel, the day of the Lord, again, is eschatological. It's going to be accompanied by these signs in the heavens, these cosmological disturbances that take place, and that it precedes a turning, or happens roughly at about the same time as this turning of the nation to God, and after it, God will pour out his Spirit upon all of the nation and this is when he establishes the the new covenant. So we've gone through Joel. That's the this is some of the most important evidence on the day of the Lord. Next time we'll come back and just do a little mopping up operation in Zephaniah, Zechariah, and a couple of passages in Amos, and then we will go into the New Testament. There's about five key passages on the day of the Lord in the New Testament, one of which is very controversial. And that's going to be very interesting to deal with because uh, I've always held and been taught one position. I'm not saying I'm changing, but I sat down with uh, Arnold. Arnold, Dr. Fruchtenbaum, takes another view, which several people have, and I've never really understood the other view. We had lunch together the other day, so at least I understand the other view, but that doesn't mean I necessarily will agree with it. But... uh, We'll look at that next time. So let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be encouraged by the fact that even though, like Israel, we live in uh, difficult times, times of economic distress, there is the promise that uh, things will be better in the future. There is the reality that you are in control and that even though things are chaotic around us and uncertain around us, Nevertheless, they are certain because you are in control, and therefore we can relax. We can be about our responsibilities and role as believers, knowing that all of the circumstances in our lives related to uh, the economy, related to health, related to whatever individual challenges there might be, those circumstances are in your hands and under your control. Therefore, we can relax and, and be about Uh, our responsibilities to serve you, to serve you in the body of Christ, to serve you as witnesses to the unsaved around us. We pray that you would challenge us with these important truths in Christ's name. Amen.